millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, welcome to Maths Appeal. I'm Bobby Seagull. And I'm Susan Okereke. The aim of this podcast is to show that maths is for everyone, whether you're someone that thinks they're a high flyer or someone that thought, oh, I can't do maths. We want to show you that, really, maths is for everyone. This is episode eight. Two and cubed. It's... <laughs> yes, indeed, eight is two cubed. And if it's your first time listening to Maths Appeal, welcome along. And do listen back to our earlier episodes. We've covered topics like percentages, types of number and fractions and decimals. And we've had wonderful guests like comedian Ken Cheng, TV presenter Johnny Ball and writer Alex Bellos, all telling us about their math stories. This week, we'll be chatting about probability. And after that, of course, I'm going to set a puzzle related to it. And while you're working that out, we'll hear from our special guest, physicist, writer and maths education champion, Simon Singh. You might know him from his books about Fermat's Last Theorem or The Simpsons and their mathematical secrets. Then we'll return to the puzzle and show our calculations. And then we'll finish off with the maths fact taken from my book, The Life-Changing Magic of Numbers. Brilliant book. Before we start, we just want to say a massive, massive thank you for taking the time to download this podcast. There are so many great podcasts out there, so we're really, really chuffed that you've chosen Matt's Appeal. Very chuffed. And if you can help us spread the word by giving us a nice rating or review or telling your friends, that would be brilliant. Right. Now let's talk about probability. So every week when we discuss a topic, we have three questions that we try to frame the discussion with. And they are, one, what first comes to mind when we think of the topic? Then two, how do we actually teach this topic and you know introduce it to students? And thirdly, what are the common issues that arise when teaching this topic? So we'll start off at the top. So on probability, what first comes to mind? Um, so Susan, I'd, I'd like to share a quick anecdote with you. In this please topic. do, so, please do. So again, I love time machines. Picture, let's travel back to 1994 <laughs> November. Yeah, we got this. Yeah, man. Anthea Turner's very cool. <laughs> uh, the, what, what a time to be alive. Yeah, what a time to be alive. And then the lottery turned up and my dad and mom were like, well, let's get lots of tickets. Let's, let's try and win this lottery. And then I was like, oh, I'd love to see if I can use a bit of maths to work out the odds of winning the lottery. Mm. So there were 49 different numbers that yep. you can get and you had to pick six. And if you wanted to win the lottery, you needed all six numbers. Mm. And then remember, I did a quick calculation. Um, I think I was in year six. So six out of 49. Well, you were first. 11 years old, yeah, just, was, yeah, chilling. just chilling. Chilling in front of the living room. <laughs> so I worked out six out of over 49 times five out of 48 times four out of 47, yeah. times three out of 46, times two out of 45, times one out of 44. And that worked out to be one, roughly 14 million. And I was thinking, Dad, you're only, it's only one in 14 million chance. Don't buy tickets. And my dad just ignored me. But um, there you wow. go. That's the first time I encountered probability and thought that's quite powerful. Well, this is also, it's kind of, I realise as I think about it, that when you teach it, it can be quite like sort of simple. You know, there's, uh, you know, you've got five 
uh, red balls in a bag and two blue balls in a bag. What's the probability of picking a red ball? And you're just like... Five out of seven. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well done, Bobby. You're yeah, very good yeah. at probability. Um, but it's a type of thing that most people don't really do very often. But actually, probability is everywhere around us. Like, you know, as you say, working out the probability of winning the lottery i think actually when you put it into terms like that one in 14 million that's like ridiculously unlikely but people buy into it all the time thinking that they buy two tickets they're twice as likely and you're like well it's tiny you've yeah. you've doubled the the fraction but at the same time it's a very very small amount and i think a lot of people don't understand it and i think kind of society and the people who are aware that businesses and things are dependent on people not, not understanding, understanding it, yeah. which is really like bad because i think everyone should have an under- a, a basic kind of grasp of it and because it, it is you know as i say everywhere it's in our healthcare system you know think about what's the chance what's the probability of a certain medication working yeah. you know like what's the chance of getting an illness if you continue to smoke stuff like that where actually these numbers matter and they can have an impact on people's lives but people don't really get what they mean so for me it's all about likelihoods mm-hmm. how likely is something to happen like you're talking about probabilities of a you know, an operation being successful yeah or, yeah or medication working i don't know i think it's like trying to give us like a practical understanding of is something going to happen or not going to happen and you're trying to Put yourself on a scale somewhere. Well, that's the thing. So when I think about teaching it, we I generally start with, I think a lot of teachers start with the probability scale from zero to one. There we go. Yeah, Bobby just showed me a diagram of the same thing. <laughs> um, and like where zero is impossible, so it can definitely never happen. And one is certain, which means it will definitely happen. And it's things like, you know, zero would be that Monday comes after Tuesday in the week. Because it doesn't mm. come before, so it yeah. doesn't, and that never happens. And then on the flip side, the certainty would be that Monday comes after Sunday. Yeah. That comes happens all the time. So, and there's somewhere in between that, and that's where our probabilities effectively lie. And then it's the whole idea of throwing the numbers in from zero to one, but also, you know, and that can be the probabilities can be in the form of fractions, but can also be in the form of decimals, which can also be in the form of percentages. Yes, and you're going to say that. Well, you know. <laughs> um, so it's just that thing of, you know, one, people understanding what the likelihood is and maybe being able to work that out. And then also understanding that it can take a variety of representations. Yeah, and I think if you can show students that actually probabilities are used in everyday life for example when you wake up in the morning and you think oh should i take a coat mm. or should i should i take sunglasses essentially you're making a weather prediction and when we watch the television mm. the weather forecast is not saying oh this is definitely going to happen this it's likely to be it's you know it's it's an 80% chance of rain today. And nowadays, there's lots of really good weather software, like I think AccuWeather, where it tells you the percentage chance of rain falling. Yeah. Well, every day, that's one of my um, going to bed routines, is you know, I'll brush my teeth, <laughs> get myself ready, especially if I'm going to work, get myself ready, what I'm going to wear tomorrow. And then I'll be like, right, what's the weather going to be like? Mm. And then look at my, my weather app, and then, you know, if it's going to be rain, what coat am I going to wear? Stuff like that, where actually that chance has a massive impact on kind of how people maybe like use work in their day. Yes, yeah, so, so I think when students see that they're using probability when they wake up, mm. it shows them actually this is something that is relevant. Like, again, with algebra, I, we, we obviously think it's a beautiful topic, but students might think, oh, I don't really use algebra. But probability, they're always assessing probabilities. Oh, if I leave home at eight o'clock, what's the chance of my bus being delayed? Like, yeah. If I've got a job interview... I can't afford that. Even that 5% risk, that's too high. So I'll have to take the, the bus before. So it has, it has an impact on planning and also it has an impact on people's critical thinking, which actually 
we kind of want more people to be engaging with. But also when it comes to teaching, we think about the topic of probability. You've got, you know, the scale, how likely and unlikely something is to happen. You've got a way of working out like what the actual theoretical probability is. So that means if everything was even in, in what you'd predict to be the probability. So an example would be if you had a dice yep. or a die, I almost forget, the die is singular. Yeah. Um, and if you're throwing it, the chance of getting a six is... One out of? Six, because there's six different sides to a dice. So six, six, six different potential outcomes. So the whole point is your uh, your denominator, your bottom like, number on your fraction would be the total number of outcomes and then your top number is the the number of outcomes that you actually want. So that's a theoretical. Yeah. But actually, if you were to roll a dice, you know, a number of times, would it always be one sixth chance of getting six? Reality is probably not. But the whole point is the more you do it, the more you do it, the more likely it tends towards yes. a sixth. And I think that difference of knowing what you predict it will be, but what it actually is in real life. And that's kind of what, that's the, that's the basis of gambling, isn't it? It is. Where, where you think there's a deviation, where you think, ah, oh, the theoretical, it's sort of, it's gone away from that. I think it will revert back to one sixth after a while. It's interesting though. I think one of the things I think that I'm trying to do more with when teaching the subject is to, once you kind of, they understand the idea of what the theoretical probability is, is getting kids to actually test it out. So play a game. So they yeah. might play a game with dice or coins. Mm-hmm. So in a coin, it might be, obviously, there's a head and a tail. And you'd expect, theoretically, 50% of the throws to land in a head and 50% on a tail. But if they play a game between two people and they throw it 50 times, someone might get 31 the first time. Yeah. 31 heads. And then if they play another 50 times, it might start balancing, balancing out. out. But I suppose it's that thing, isn't it? Well, that's what game, that's what kind of sports games are kind of based on. So your hammers. Yes. You know, and like the, Ham United. <laughs> Your team, like the likelihood of them like winning, hundred percent all the time, Bobby. I think he's a little bit delusional, but that's totally fine. Um, but you know, like sometimes when people are on a winning streak, people think that's going to continue. But that actually, the more likely thing is, if you've got a winning streak of say three, four, five games, it's actually more likely that you're going to lose the next one. Yeah, because like I think that's where, where human psychology and human behavior mm. interacts with probability. Because in, for example, in sport, if a team's won ten times. Probably that's, we know from history, teams never win a thousand games in a row. So that streak ends. Yeah. So actually, perhaps the, their fortunes will turn. But the issue is it, it could happen. That's yeah. where the, the, the joy of this is why yes. kind of people kind of get involved in it. But I suppose when we think about what issues people might have when it comes to really like understanding probability, it's kind of just getting the basics that working out what the total number of outcomes are, potentially of something, and then knowing that the one you want is effectively your, your numerator there. So, like, uh, imagine you were asked to work out the chance of throwing an even number on a dice. Mm. The six outcomes, so that's the denominator. The bottom the, number, yeah. Yeah, and then the, the two, four, and six, they're the three even numbers. So there's three outcomes, so the numerator, out mm. of six possible options. So three out of six. Yeah, which, you know, and I think people understanding that. And I think, actually, if we can encourage more people to think, like, critically about what they're told, I think, in the real world regarding probability, like and question and think, what does that really mean? So if you've been given a medication and it says that it's got a 60% chance of curing you or helping the symptoms you have, what does that mean about the 40% and, and like how they maybe work that out? Because I think actually a lot of the time it's good to know where these this information comes from and understanding the basis of probability kind of are dependent on that as well. Yeah, and again, from a 
even like in the finance industry oh, yeah. when people they look at a chart of a a company or a stock and they think oh this has been rising every year mm. they always say things like past performance is not an indicator of future performance so you can't always assume that the probability of success of a company is going to be the same forever so it's puzzle time bobby so have you got a nice probability puzzle for us the probability of that is a 1 certain <laughs> So you have two options for breakfast every day. Mm, breakfast. A, a quick bowl of cornflakes or making yourself a delicious full cooked English breakfast. On average, you are 3 times more likely to have cornflakes than a full cooked English. Assuming your choice of selection is independent, what is the probability that you will have a cooked breakfast at least once during a weekend? Right. Can we just explain what independent it means? Yeah, so independent means if you have a cooked breakfast on one day, yeah. it doesn't impact the probability of you picking a cooked breakfast the oh, next day. Oh, right. So you could have it two days in a row and yeah. touch the sides. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So you you you'd keep the probabilities the same. Wonderful. Okay, that's good. To so know. should I repeat the puzzle one more time? Yes, please. So, on average, you are 3 times more likely to have cornflakes than a full English breakfast. Sure. So assuming they're independent selections, The question is what's the probability that over a weekend you'll have at least one cooked breakfast. Right, at least one. Okay, wonderful. Right. While you're working that out, let's hear from our guest Simon Singh. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f- Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50. luxurious italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns. As a math teacher, um sometimes students who are in sixth form and applying to university mm-hmm. they'll write a personal statement and often maths personal statements they'll mention books and there's a a non-zero probability quite a high probability that they might mention some of Simon Singh's books and I often recommend to my students if you want to apply to a math sort of base subject university read his books because he's got so much enthusiasm uh, from the books and it really gives you a sense of wow this is what maths is capable of so this is yeah it's one of my uh, inspiring figures. Also you'll hear from him about his film and book on Fermat's last theorem. In a nutshell Bobby, what is that? So, I'll trace your mind back to Pythagoras theorem at school. Most of our students and listeners and teachers and friends would have heard of this. So it's where it's it says a squared plus b squared equals c squared. And we know that works because if we have a 3 is a, 3 squared is 9, 4 is b, 4 squared is 16. So 3 squared plus 4 squared equals 25 mm-hmm. square root of 25 is 5 so that works 3 4 5 but fermat's last theorem essentially said instead of the squares write a to the n plus b to the n equals c to the n and what he said was that there are no 
positive integer solutions bigger than two. An integer is a positive or negative whole number. Yeah, there, there are no integer solutions for this where n is bigger than two that make a to the n plus b to the n equals c to the n work. So you have to prove something that doesn't exist. So there's no solution for this. Wow. If n is two, so we know like three squared plus four squared equals five squared or six squared plus eight squared equals 10 squared, but there's nothing for n is bigger than two. Wow, so that's like a massive number theorem but actually that there's no proof for yeah so there wasn't okay right so we're going to hear a bit more about this from simon and uh, here is simon to introduce himself so i'm simon singh i'm a physicist by training i did a phd in particle physics and then i went to work for the bbc for many years making programs like tomorrow's world and horizon and then i started writing books and a lot of those books have been about maths things like fermat's last theorem and the simpsons and their mathematical secrets and then also a book about cryptography called The Code Book and Big Bang, which is all about cosmology. And uh, I've been involved in things like campaigning for libel reform. Uh, I've done a zillion talks in everything from theatres to schools to Singapore to Southampton. Um, and now I'm, I suppose I'm particularly interested in education and, and maths in schools is probably what I'm spending most of my time looking at. Brilliant. Okay, so that's really quite varied. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, uh, and so how did you go from doing a PhD in physics to one writing about maths and then two going into sort of education? So, so the, the step in between is television. So uh, when I was doing my PhD, I could just see people who were better than me, quicker than me, uh, smarter than me. And I could just see that they were the people who were going to go on and make great discoveries. So I thought, well, what else can I do? And I love television and I love talking about science and I love trying to get other people excited about science. And when I say science, I mean maths and I mean engineering as well. Uh, It's all the same thing. And so I I luckily got a job at the BBC working on Tomorrow's World, a short traineeship first. You know, those were the days when there wasn't a YouTube and you couldn't make your own films and you couldn't just edit edit it on your own PC. Mm. So I didn't have much TV experience, but then again, nobody else had much experience either and so they gave me a break I started making films I seemed to have a knack for it and um, and then I'd been making films for about six years and and I'd won a BAFTA and I thought well what else can you do you know (laughs) so I thought well I might as well stop now while I'm ahead quick while I'm ahead and um, and I made it the film that won the award uh, was about Fermat's Last Theorem and so I know lots of math teachers show it to their kids and and it's on it's on the BBC iPlayer still so you can still watch it Uh, and if you're overseas you can watch it on YouTube and a million other places but that was such a great story um, that it it went far beyond what was just in the the 60 minutes of the documentary so somebody said why don't you write a book about it and go into the maths in more detail and investigate the history in more detail and so uh, that's how I went from PhD to television to writing about books and actually I think books suit me more I I prefer sort of being on my own I I like my solitude Um, I like working with teams as well I find that really invigorating exciting how ideas can come together and how you can you know that shared experience of developing an idea but you know if, if, if I, given the choice, I'm also very, very happy just being on my own. That, that's kind of what a writer is, is, being a writer is all about. And so what kind of drives you with, what kind of story are you trying to tell with the books that you're writing regarding maths and science? It, it, it varies. It, I mean, the, the difficult thing is finding something to write about. Um, you, you can pretty, you know, my works are not works of literary genius. Yeah. I think they're good storytelling, and that <laughs> probably comes from working in television. Because if you work in television, you have to tell good stories, yeah. and you have to tell them concisely, and you have to have clear explanations. Because 
in a book, you can go back and reread things. On television, you only get one go at it. Mm -hmm. So that clarity probably comes from my TV experience. And also, I'd done a bit of work in schools. I'd worked in classrooms. And, and so, again, that, that idea of being able to teach an idea, to explain it clearly, is something that, you know, obviously that's what teachers do all day. So I suppose you're seeing the connection between engagement and learning with your books and now with the education stuff. Yeah, but, but I, I mean, I, the book's all about inspiring and the TV programme's all about inspiring. And to be honest, I think we have enough inspiring. I think, okay. like, I, okay. think, like, I think we could draw a line under it. Now, we always need people to inspire. But the thing that I really get frustrated about is I think if you're, if you're really good at maths, yeah. I don't think that potential is necessarily uh, realised. I think a lot of schools say, well, if you're OK oh. at maths, we need to make you good. Mm. But if you're good at maths what's the problem oh. whereas I think if you're good at maths or if that's where you're applying yourself and that's where you're motivated you should be stretched to excellence you should be stretched right. to the point where you really do reach your potential and that's something and, you think that's missing currently in our maths education system yeah because I, I think we say to kids oh well, you can be a mathematician you can be an engineer you can be a computer scientist you can do all these amazing things yeah. so we do all the inspiring stuff quite well but I don't think we necessarily give the kids the tools they need mm. to go on and achieve those goals. If you're good at maths, mm. you know, key stage three is a walk in the park, mm. yeah? You, know, you, uh, you probably know better than me. because well, yeah, because it's kind of the whole... Um, if you, if, like, having looked at the primary school curriculum, and I, I'm really interested in sort of foundation GCSE, and actually key stage two content, and that's the top of primary school, mm. is very similar to the, to the foundation GCSE. And then, so if you're 11 year, years old and you do incredibly well at primary school, you probably could do quite well at foundation GCSE, yeah. but you've got five years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, then, and then it becomes too easy, and then you become complacent, mm. and then you're never facing anything that's challenging. Right. And when you do face something that's challenging, you get a bit scared. Yeah. So I've got two or three projects at the moment. I'll tell you about them very, very quickly. In case great, yeah. One is, uh, is, is aimed at sixth formers, and it's an online math competition called Who Wants to Be a Mathematician? We've just <laughs> nice. finished that this year. Yeah. Uh, the winner will be going off to America to compete for a $10,000 prize. So that's, wow. that's a great competition for sixth formers. Um, it's all free. Um, second one is something called Parallel. So every Thursday afternoon, and there'll be one coming out this week, I release about 20 minutes of maths, or sometimes a bit of philosophy, sometimes a bit of science, sometimes a bit of anything that I find interesting. On what format? It's online. Okay. So you, you just go to this page, you free account for teachers, free account for students, parents can make an account for year seven, year eight, year nine. And it's just intriguing, interesting, curious math, sometimes video clips, sometimes a number file video. Mm-hmm. Nearly every week we have a junior math challenge problem from the UKMT. So that's something, again, to stretch kids who kind of have got everything they need to do in that week in their classroom. Right. Let's get them to do some interesting, more interesting math over the weekend. That's Parallel. I think it's parallel.org.uk. All free again. I stress that once again. Mm -hmm. And then the other project, which is running in 13 schools at the moment, is called the Top Top Set Maths Project. Wow. It's to get kids who've mastered everything at primary in year seven and put them into a top, top set. Not just a top set. Yeah, turn the volume up to 11. Yeah. Um, but really challenging, yeah. kind of abstract, kind of That's it. I mean, yeah. They're still learning the basics of maths, but yeah. they're going through it a bit more quickly, yeah. so then they can cover other things in more depth mm-hmm. and, and so on. Yeah, so that's why you know, it's really important to work with kids who are struggling, mm-hmm. really important to work with kids who are in the middle but could do better. But shouldn't forget. We shouldn't yeah, forget. Yeah, we shouldn't forget those kids for whom maths could be their complete careers and their livelihoods. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and that's what those three projects are aimed at. So top top set is only with thirteen schools now, but in five years' time, I'd love it to be running in five hundred schools. Yeah. So wherever you are in the country, there's a school nearby that has a top top set maths program. So um, tell us then a little bit about your experience of maths at school. To have gone on to do a PhD in physics, you must have enjoyed it. Yeah. So I went to what they called a direct grant school. Grammar schools were being phased out, and mm. so our local authority would pay you a grant to go to uh, an independent school. And so I went to effectively a sort of independent grammar school type experience where the top set really was a serious top set. And you were in this? I was in the top yes. set and, and I was not the best. There were two or three kids who were much better than me. Uh, Stephen Connor, David Oldham, I'm not bitter. <laughs> but, um, but, but I, you know, that, that, you know, being in that gang of kids who were really um, engaging with the subject mm. meant that, that I got kind of pulled along yeah. and so that by the time I got to do physics and if you do physics and again I say this whenever I talk to sit formers if you're going to do a degree in physics your maths needs to be great yeah. um, you're going to be spending a third of your time doing maths and so you better like it and you better be good at it but so I was good at maths and I enjoyed it I had a great math teacher taught me for eight years in a row oh wow um, the same teacher yeah, for eight years yeah. and, and um, oh, wow Sadly, he went off to become a music teacher because that was his other great love. Um, and so, <laughs> so I've, I've, I've seen him a couple of times since then. And, and oh, um, wow. so, yeah, so, so I, I enjoyed my math, but yeah. physics is what I really loved. And so that was obviously what I would mm-hmm. do at university. Um, and so, yeah. So, um, so, as you know, the aim of this podcast is to try and help make maths more accessible to more people. You know, and it's the amazing stuff you're doing to girls' education stuff is for the higher end maybe who haven't really been stretched. What advice would you give to, say, parents or teachers who aren't able to access your projects, who know that they need to, they want to do this, support their students, support their kids? Like what kind of advice would you give to um, them? So for, for, so for parents, so sometimes parents email me and say, oh, you know, my son was also really good at maths and the really like, what else can they do beyond school? Mm. And I, I think parallel is very, very true. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I would say that. Uh, the, the second thing is, you know, there's, there's a ton of stuff that's out there. There's, you know, there's the Enrich website. Mm. There's yeah. uh, loads of uh, terrific yeah. videos. You know, number five videos. A third of a billion people have watched these maths videos. Wow. Um, they know, are brilliant. Some of them are, uh, are, are, are trivial. Some of them are really in-depth. But you can just dive in and just start exploring them with your child and then you'll find a level that works for you. Mm. So there's so much stuff out there on the internet. There's so much amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, so many, you know, maths puzzle pages, puzzle of the week and so on. So I think the thing to do is to dive in and just see what works for you. I wish somebody would say, these are my top 10 sites and this is how you should use them. But, but, but in a way, in a way there's, there's just too much stuff that's out there. It is surprising how intimidating it can be, but, but you know, you dive in. These things often cost 99 pence. If they work, they work. If they don't, you find something else. Yeah. And also, the, the, I think the thing is to expand beyond maths as being the things that math, that math teachers typically teach at school. Yeah. It's bigger. It's about logic problems. It's mm-hmm. about coding. It's about riddles and puzzles. It's about being systematic and, yeah. you know... It's, um, about, it's about thinking outside of the box. Problem it's solving. About, it's about being creative as well, but yeah. it's, it's, it's all those other things that... Uh, yeah, there's just so much stuff out there today. It's just it's it's a it's an amazing, beautiful place to explore, and so I really encourage parents, in particular, to go and see what they can find for their kids. So that was Simon Singh. 
giving us loads of food for thought. Um, yeah. And at the end, you talk about some of the apps and websites that would be useful for teachers and parents. And the ones he suggested were the Enrich website, which is uh, based at the University of Cambridge. And they're fabulous for really creative problem-solving type uh, puzzles. Yeah, wonderful. And then there's Numberphile YouTube site, which, again, he said, has lots of videos on anything and everything. And, you know, was it like a third of a billion views. With real mathematicians and kind of who do some really interesting yeah. things, yeah. Um, but also, he, what was great, he sort of shared loads of um, other apps and resources that I'd never heard of, including things like Brilliant, Wiz, Komodo, my, um, and all these amazing kind of apps that teachers, parents and students can use on their phone. A lot of them are free or very, very cheap. And it's something that actually we, I think we should put together like a top 10 list, I think. Yeah, definitely. So put together a list, but we also would love our listeners to tell us what they think are their top 10 or top few, um, because obviously there might be things that we haven't seen. Let us know at Maths Appeal, so tell us on Twitter or on, on via Instagram. One of the things that Simon said in his discussion was about the Top Top Set project. And I'll tell you my personal experience with this, because a few years ago when Simon was setting this up, um, he actually approached me to say, oh, can you help with uh, creating some resources? Mm-hmm. And... I like the idea because, again, as a teacher, we're meant to, obviously, we're thinking about making sure that everyone can access maths. Yeah. But there is an issue about people at the top sets, the ones who are really thriving at the top sets. Sometimes as a teacher, even myself, I'm guilty. I think, oh, they'll be fine. Well, that's the thing. I think that's a real, he really opened my eyes to the idea that they are, these students are kind of left behind because a big thing for me is access for everyone. But you're right. Like he was saying, there's loads of students who should be stretched and then actually for five years, they're not. And these are people that could have careers that use a significant amount of mathematics. They might be the people that create new mathematics yeah. that helps us in our medicine and our science and our technology. Mm. So if these uh, students are getting ignored, even though, again, as a society, we think oh, the top will look after themselves academically. But if we ignore them, mm. actually, we're missing out on, you know, if you're talking about making sure maths is accessible for everyone, it needs to be accessible for the people at the top as well so that they can really thrive. And for our society as well, yeah. Um, the projects he's mentioned seem amazing. And again, the, we're going to put links to them if you want to find out more uh, on our Twitter and on our Instagram. So, Bobby, shall we go back to our puzzle? So you have two options for breakfast every day. A quick bowl of cornflakes or a full cooked English. On average, you're three times more likely to have cornflakes than a full cooked English. Assuming you're choice of selection is independent the question was what is the probability that you will have cooked breakfast at least once during your weekend so all right how did you get on with this well i obviously first had to decipher the information break it down uh, so there were two options cornflakes full english breakfast and then you said that the probability of getting cornflakes is three times more than the probability of making a full english so then i allocated three quarters of the probability for conflict and then one quarter for full English. Okay. Then I drew a tree diagram. So this is, not, this is not a tree, is it? An actual no. tree? It's a probability tree diagram, which is kind of made up of prongs. <laughs> it's quite hard to describe, but again, I'll make my, uh, make both of our solutions available on Instagram uh, and Twitter. So you can see kind of how we set out our uh, solutions. So mine, again, visually drew a tree diagram and the first prong, so the first day, 
So again, you said over the weekend, which yes. is a total of two days, Correct. Saturday and Sunday. So the first day, my options are full English cornflakes. Chance of getting full English is a quarter. Chance of getting uh, cornflakes is three quarters. Then if I was to get full English on the Saturday, what are my chances then of uh, full English and cornflakes on Sunday? And again, as you said, it's independent. It'd then be again for full English, a quarter. And for uh, cornflakes, it'd be three quarters. Yeah. And so then went back down to look on my tree at cornflakes. If I've picked cornflakes on Saturday, I could then on Sunday pick full English, which is a quarter, and then cornflakes, which is three quarters. So I know to find out whether uh, what the probability is of getting a full English twice, that would be a quarter times a quarter. Correct. Okay. Also, I did also, as I listening to your question, you said at least one Eng- full English. Mm-hmm. So it could be a full English on Saturday, not Sunday, mm-hmm. or a full English on Sunday, not Saturday. Correct. Or it could be a full English on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. So they're my three potential mm-hmm. outcomes. Okay. And then, so for full English on both days is a quarter times a quarter, which mm-hmm. is one over 16. Uh, full English on one day is a quarter times three quarters, which is three over 16, but that's twice, which is six over 16. Mm-hmm. Add on my one over 16, which is seven over 16. Yeah, and this is one of those things that, that's perfect that you answer. Visually, this is quite easy to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of random fractions it might sound like I'm saying, but when you see the diagram, hopefully kind of makes sense that you're effectively travelling along your tree. And then one other way that I, I would have come up with a solution is to do one, subtract, the chance of having ah. cornflakes on both days. So cornflakes on both days is three quarters times three quarters. That's nine sixteenths. Yeah. So on all the other three options, you're having at least one right. cooked. So you do one, subtract the nine sixteenths, right. and that gives you the same answer. Wonderful. Because I suppose if you have cornflakes on both days, you're not having uh, full English at all. Exactly. Right. Okay. Yes. Thank you, Bobby, for that. And, and as we know, we like to round off each episode with a maths fact. So, Bobby, again, what have you got for us? So this time, it is from my book, The Life-Changing Magic Ooh. of Numbers. It made the cut. It's the A-side. I, I, I hope this is a good one. <laughs> so, do you know when you hear about things like a one in a million chance? Yes. And it sounds like, oh my God, that's a miracle, a one in a million shot. Right. Um, so there's a professor in uh, Cambridge in the 60s called John Littlewood. And he set up a theory that showed actually one in a million things aren't as remarkable as they seem. Yeah. And I'll show you he's working. So he said in an eight-hour day, right. where so that's you know, nine to five, we're awake and alert, and we see and hear things once a second. Uh, so how many seconds in a minute? Uh, 60. Yeah, how many? <laughs> so we've got eight hours. How many minutes in an hour? 60. So we've got eight hours times 60 minutes times, times 60 six seconds. seconds. Yeah. That gives us 28,800 different events that we all see and in. hear in a day. And most of these are mundane, like a traffic light going green or a bird flying by. But then he said over the course of 35 days, actually 34.72. And the way we get that is you do a million divided by 28,800. Okay, yeah. That's 35 days roughly. Yeah, yeah. All of us experience a million different events. So just mathematically, he said, all of us experience a one in a million event once every 34.72 days. And then this is the cool thing. A global population, do you know, roughly is like in, in the billions. You have a, eight. Yeah, but it's yeah, like it's something seven, like seven point six, and it's going to be eight by the time this is out. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but with that population and every single person having a one in a million thing oh happening just over a month, of course they're going to be things that seem like miracles. So, you know, I'm not discounting miracles, but mathematically these things will happen. Oh God, because because on some level anything's possible. Exactly. 
Well, Bobby, thank you for that. That's why I made the book. <laughs> hey, um, and if you have any maths facts, we would love to hear from you. We'd love to share as well. And next week, we're getting stuck, not quite literally though, into <laughs> stats and statistics. We also hear from Anne-Marie Mafedon, CEO of Stemets, a social enterprise promoting women in STEM careers. That's science, technology, engineering and maths. She was also a child prodigy and passed her GCSEs in maths and IT when she was... 11 years old. Wow. No big deal. No biggie. <laughs> uh, so we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Maths Appeal with me, Bobby Seagull and Susan Okereke. And the music was composed by Kelly Okereke, the image designed by Calix Davis and the producer is our wonderful Jennifer Nelson. <laughs> <laughs>